Before we get into the message today, I'm just going to open in prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. Okie doke. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that now makes this home with each one of us that has put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior. Thank you that you want our hearts. Thank you that you still want an intimate one-on-one relationship with us in spite of the things we do and say. You are so gracious, God. And I thank you for this love letter that you've given to us full of 66 books. And I thank you that it was written by you and not by man. Because if it was written by man, all it would be is heroic story after heroic story. And everything always turned up roses and sunshine and rainbows. And that's not at all what happens with sinful human beings. We see the ugly. We see the horrific And we see that same in our lives, in our hearts. But God, you being rich in mercy, sent your son to die for us so we can exchange our filthy rags for the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. So when you, Father, when you look at us, you don't see us. You see your son's clothing on us because we've been covered by the blood of the lamb. Thank you for your grace, your mercy on us, your forgiveness and your steadfast love that never ceases. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We're continuing in our series in Joseph here. And when Pastor Russ said, you got two chapters again, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Because I like going by section by section guy. That when um, Janet and I were doing our church plants, I was... I would just go through a book, and I'd go through section by section. And so to do two chapters in 35, 40 minutes, it's like, all right. So the big picture today, God's unfathomable grace. This is the running theme from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 22. Even the time of tribulation the seven years of tribulation, God's grace, while his wrath is being poured out, his grace is still being poured out at the exact same time, and that makes a really weird battle in my head. So today, as I was reading through chapters 46 and 47, I'm like, all right, Lord, so this is the trek from Canaan down to Egypt for Jacob. What's the big picture? And this is what he gave me. So we're going to read chapter 46, verses 1 through 7. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. So Israel, or Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, And Jacob said, here I am. 
Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Joseph and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. You may be seated. Thanks for obliging me. So this passage focuses on Jacob. And here's just a brief recap on Jacob. He's had a bit of a rough life. And a lot of that's self-imposed. And sometimes it's how it goes when people have rough lives. It's not always a for sure kind of thing. But many times when people have a rough life, sometimes it's because it's self-imposed. And I'm a living testimony to that. But God's grace is bigger. Here's the picture, just a little synopsis here of Jacob and Esau. In the womb, Jacob struggled with his paternal twin, Esau. Jacob's the second born. He came out grasping the heel of his brother. It's like he wanted first. And he couldn't get out first, so his brother got out ahead of him. And he's like, well, just to let you know, this was a fight. You might have gotten out first, but this is a fight. Grabbed his heel. He grew up with a not-so-great relationship with his dad, Isaac. There's a lot of dysfunctional families in the Bible that we see. A lot of dysfunctional families today. As we can see from the text and from this kind of photo, this is the best photo I could find, kind of showing the comparison of Jacob and Esau. We see... Esau is a hunter, outdoorsy, kind of a doodly dude, man's man. Jacob was more domesticated. He liked to be cooking. He was more of a chef kind of guy, nothing wrong with that. He was more of a mama's boy that we see. He and his mom were very close. Isaac and Esau were very close. And Isaac showed favoritism to Esau. And most of the time that happened with the firstborn sons in that culture especially. So all this starts creating strife in the home. Jacob deceives his brother Esau not once but twice with the birthright and the blessing. There's always a competition and there's always these conflicts going on between the two of them. Jacob also deceives his father on his deathbed. But that was largely due to the help of his mother, Rebecca. His brother Esau finds out that he's been ripped off not only because he gave up his birthright, but now Jacob has stole the blessing. And to say he's ticked is putting it very lightly and mild. Now Jacob is running for his life because Esau swore a vow to kill his brother as soon as he was done mourning the loss of his dad Isaac. He had his crosshairs on his brother. Rebecca hears that whispers to Jacob, get lost. 
Go to my brother Laban's house. Find yourself a wife there. Lay low till I tell you, till Esau's anger has subsided. So he runs there and he finds out his uncle's a crook. Thank you very little. Now the deceiver's getting deceived. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? Some people would say karma. Mm-mm, no, not karma. That's just God's justice that happens. Sometimes it's given immediately, sometimes it's not. And then furthermore, Jacob catches the eye of Rachel. Rachel's not the firstborn, she's the second. And it's no secret what he thinks about Rachel. So he goes to Laban, his uncle, and says, I will work for seven years if you'll give me Rachel as my wife. The guy's like, deal. And isn't it just like God's word to put it in this sense? When he worked those seven days, the Bible says to Jacob, because of his love for Rachel, it seemed like just a day. (laughs) I'm like, wow, how poetic. But then he gets deceived again by this crooked uncle. All of a sudden, he finds out it's the old bait and switch. He got Leah, the firstborn daughter, and he's ticked off. Mm, how's it feel, Jacob? Mm-hmm. Goes up to Laban, what'd you do? He's like, well, you know, it's not our custom to marry the second daughter first. I, it, it, blame it on the custom. Had to, have, had to be the first daughter first. But you know what? Wait a week. And then go ahead, take Rachel as her wife, but then just work another seven years for Rachel and I'll be good. (laughs) Fourteen years. And thus, unfortunately, we see the first episode of Sister Wives. One is loved, one is not. Think this is going to cause some friction? And then... Pour on top of this mess that Rachel is now barren. She can't have kids. Leah, she's a very fertile baby-making machine, if you will. And she's thinking that having these kids and giving more, and especially sons, is going to make her more loved in Jacob's eyes, and that's not the case. So now you got the two sisters causing strife. And to be barren was like the curse of all curses. Laban continues to take advantage of Jacob financially and otherwise, as we see over the course of 20 years. 20 years. Conflicts continue between Leah and Rachel. And then, on top of this, let's, what, what happens when there's friction in the family, let's add more problems, okay? Let's have our maidservants start getting in here, and Jacob, please go spend the night with each one of our maidservants, and then I'll take their kids as my own kid, and they'll be your kid. You see the mess? This isn't the first time this happened, though. This is now going back to Abraham and Sarah, See what happens when we don't wait on God's timing and we take matters into our own hands? Isaac did the same thing. Does God just say, that's it, this unconditional promise I gave to you, (laughs) that's it. You guys can't even keep, you, you can't trust me in one thing. So that's it, promise done. 
no, that's not God. And the problem with Jacob is he did what Leah and what Rachel offered to him by sleeping with their maidservants. He did that. He should have and could have said, no, I'm going to trust God in this. But just like Grandpa Abraham, well, okay, what's another person? Finally, we see the Lord answers Rachel's prayers, gives her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And now the whole thing of favoritism, starting with Father Abraham and then going down to Isaac, now goes to Jacob, and he continues the favoritism thing. Now Joseph is the number one. Benjamin's the number two. And then there's ten other sons. Jacob ends up having 12 kids from four different women. When there's already strife, let's add more conflict, let's add more confusion, and let's just add a whole lot more problems into the mix. Because if you add more problems into the mix, that means that things are going to get better, right? So what happens with these kids? The favoritism is definitely seen by the women, by Leah and Rachel. And now this favoritism, I'm just going to start calling it a, a, a cancerous sin gene, is now passed down to the kids because each one of these mothers now have a jaded view on what family relationships and dynamics now look like. And then what happens to the kids? They get indoctrinated by this cancerous Sin gene. These kids get involved in adult problems and adult issues when they should not be. And what does this do? It causes hatred among these 12 siblings, 10 in particular. It causes them to hate Joseph to the point of murder. And then we see where the story plays out. Jacob, he leaves Laban with his wives, their maidservants, his kids, their kids, kids, the whole clan, they go to Canaan. Along the way, he wrestles with God himself. But before that little wrestling match was over, he says, please bless me. And Jesus does. That's Genesis 32, verse 29. And then we see the sin gene just continue to play out as Joseph's sons dishonor him by their mistreatment of Joseph. And then lying to Jacob about what their plans were for him and what they actually did to him, faking his death. So you read the story and sometimes maybe this comes to your mind, where was God in all this? Where was God? Was he taking an eighth day of rest? What about this promise of being made to a great nation and going down with you and I'm going to go back up with you? Well, as we see, God was working behind the scenes. He was working right in the midst of the scenes. He was working in front of the scenes the whole time. And during the whole time, he's showing grace to Jacob, to Leah, to Rachel, 
to their kids, to the women's maidservants. He's showing grace upon grace upon grace to them. (laughs) And I think of myself and others that I've talked to, when they're going through just sometimes it's storm after storm after storm, and you're just like, God, where are you? Seriously, enough is enough, please. We've seen this with Job. We've seen this with Joseph. Now we've seen it with Jacob a little bit. Where are our hearts at? Where's our perspective? If we allow the enemy to knock our vision off of our Savior during those times, then that allows the enemy to put on what I call demonic blinders. So all we see is us. All we see is our circumstance, and all we see is this mounting bad boy, this big concrete wall with some bad boy barbed wire and razor stuff on the top that it seems inclimbable and indestructible. How do we get past that? God's patiently waiting, just saying, Dave, dude, here I am. Seriously, man. But he doesn't even say that to me. He just says, here I am. There's two types of grace that God gives out. There's common grace, universally given to Christians and non-Christians alike. And then there's the special grace, which is spiritually given. The moment you receive Jesus as Savior, you've received the special grace of God upon your life. And here's kind of a thing as well for us Christians. Sometimes this special grace from God is one of the biggest things that we as Christians habitually take for granted. I'm guilty of that so much. And even Paul addresses that in the book of Romans where he says, so should, because of the grace that we get from God, should we just continue to go out and sin more because we can, because we got this grace card? And Paul says, by no means, exclamation point. He's like, no stinking way are we to do this. That's the message version, I think. We are not to take advantage of God's grace. It is such an amazing gift, we have no idea how amazing it is. And we will never understand how deep it is. And then I heard this question asked by one of the favorite pastors Janet and I like to listen to. It's out of Hawaii. His name is J.D. Farag. I've mentioned him before. Amazing guy. He asked this question, and it, it rocked me. Not in a good way. But it ended up being a good way. <laughs> and I want to ask you all this. What is the one thing that we can give to God that he doesn't already have? Talking about Christians here. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, what is the one thing that you can give to God that he does not already have? Does anyone have an idea? Seriously, like raise your hand and kind of shout it out. Anyone know? I didn't know. I got it wrong. This is the answer, our obedience. That's the one thing that we can give that he doesn't already have. And we see this 
Samuel when he's uh, rebuking Saul, and rightfully so. And this is the moment that King Saul got the kingdom torn away from him. First Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel said, Does the Lord take much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice and obedience to the voice of the Lord? Know this, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. God has our sacrifice. He has the things that we do for him. He has the things that we'll give up for him. But what he really wants is our heart. If he's got our heart, he's got our obedience. You look at the example of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. God very clearly said what he required for Cain and Abel to bring to him as their offerings and sacrifice. Cain didn't sin by not bringing a sacrifice. Oh, he brought a sacrifice, all right. He brought his offerings. He didn't obey the Lord, though. He said, "Eh, I'll bring what I want to bring, and that's going to be sufficient. That is when he said to himself, God is not my God. I am my own God. I know better than God. We see this a lot with people and just around us, the time of Lent. What are you giving up for Lent? <laughs> oh, I'm giving up meat for Lent. I'm giving up TV. I'm giving up social media. I'm giving up Dr. Pepper cream soda. If God doesn't have our heart, that really doesn't mean anything. That's the sad reality. If God has our heart, he's got our obedience. And then here's the question. Instead of what am I willing to give up or do for God, the better question is why am I willing to give this up or do this for God? So all this to say, obedience is a huge thing. And it was a huge thing in this culture. And when you didn't obey your father in this culture, huge, huge consequences. We see in the next book of the Bible, in Exodus, how God actually puts obedience into the commandments for our earthly relationships. Fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Exodus 20, verse 12, that your days may be long upon the land with which the Lord your God is giving you. It's a conditional blessing. The father was to be respected. The sons were to be very obedient. And this is to mirror the relationship between us and our heavenly father. Or that we should have. Janet and I heard before we ever had Kaylee and all that stuff in the first five years of our marriage that were pre-kids, we spoke to some people that were looking at, yeah, they, they seem to parent well. They seem to kind of have the the corner market on this whole thing called parenting. And the phrase that stuck out was this, to delay is to disobey. If our kids don't obey us the first time, that's disobedience. If we don't obey God our Father the first time, that is disobedience. If we don't teach our kids to hear our voices and to respect and to hear our voices... 
they're not going to hear, yet alone respect the voice of their Heavenly Father. That's what we're striving for. And that we're the reflection of the, the saying, the children are the reflection of the parents. Sometimes that's very true. And we live in a day right now in this country where disobedience of kids to their parents and adults in general is off the charts. Off the charts. I mean, you go on Twitter, not Twitter, I'm sorry, you go on X. It's called X now. Whatever, you go on there, and that is just sometimes just a cesspool of what is happening in public schools in these big cities and around the country. You see these teachers getting just sworn at and cussed out and sometimes physically assaulted by these kids in school. There is zero respect for anything and anyone anymore. You've seen the, the, the mass looting of kids going into like Nordstrom, all these department stores. Over $100,000 was stolen within a five-minute period by a gaggle of kids that ran in. Holy cow, what is going on? Well, good thing we have the Bible because in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, Paul addresses this to Timothy. Fast forward to today where we're at now. But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, obedient, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Oof. That hurts, to, that hurts to read. But we're seeing that. So bringing it to today, just like Jacob, every single one of us have disobeyed our earthly fathers and, our, more importantly, our heavenly fathers. And some of you I know personally are sitting here saying, well, Dave, you know that my relationship with my earthly father is strained at best, and my earthly father was not a good example of what a, a dad should be. My heart breaks for you. That's the result of sin. But here's your hope. You have a heavenly father that will fill that void. 100%, 100% of the time. He created you. He loves you. He has forgiven you. He has sent a redeemer for you in the form of his son to fix that broken relationship back to him. He loves you. He created you and he's not going to leave you. And he created you to love you as his son and as his daughter. That heavenly love from your father, I promise you, will flood you if you allow it to. And it will fill that empty, aching void that you may be having. Because our parents may have been lacking. Will we still sin? Absolutely. We are still in this imperfect body till Jesus calls us home. 
So here's our instant way back into fellowship, 100% every time. Every time we mess up, every time we sin, every time we break our Father's heart, so to speak. It's 1 John 1, 9. And it's conditional. If, and then and then, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just. I put that then in there by myself. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, that is our way back every time to our Heavenly Father. And here's the secret. That's our way back to our earthly relationships too. There is always hope when God is running the show. And he's always running it. That's a good thing to be able to know too. So now back to Joseph. For 22 years, Joseph has lived with the false reality that his son has been killed. It was torn apart by some wild beast. But now we see the hope revived, Joseph's alive. During those 22 years, Jacob lived in a severe depression. First, when he hears the news from his sons, the word says, Jacob's heart went numb. There's disbelief. Then he sees the wagons, he sees the supplies, the Egyptian wagons, which was very distinctive, that all his sons brought from Egypt. And in spite of his depression, Jacob chose to believe, trust, and obey the Lord. Then Jacob's spirit is revived because of his trust and obedience. Isn't that just like God? He gives us the hope, we take that hope, and we believe that hope, and he revives our soul. That is amazing to me. That is a miraculous, amazing gift. And it's not just a once in a lifetime thing. He will do that again and again and again. All we got to do is trust and obey. And those are the things that we don't want to do the most. Then we see Joseph's obedience on display. He goes to Egypt. He doesn't pack an overnight bag. He doesn't pack a three-month bag. He doesn't pack a year bag. He doesn't pack a, we'll go for a couple years and play this out bag. He is all in. Everything goes. All his possessions, his whole immediate extended family, everything is going. Because he knows in some way, shape, or form, he's going back to the promised land. He knows that his bones someday, his physical bones, are going back to Canaan to be buried. But more importantly, he knows that his spiritual body is going to be with his God and with his forefathers. And Jacob obeys God, believing the vision God gave him, trusting him for what lies ahead. My question is, do you have this unwavering hope that no matter what happens that your promised home going is indeed secure. 
non-Christian, unbeliever today, this is the hope of the gospel for you. There's two types of promises here. We got conditional and unconditional. When it comes to unconditional promises, God always keeps them. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He said that to Abraham in Genesis 12. He reiterates his promise to Isaac in Genesis 24. He tells it to Jacob in Genesis 46. And he tells it to Moses in Exodus 32. I will make you a great nation to these guys. I myself will go down with you. He says that to Jacob and to Moses. Genesis 46, Exodus 33. And then he also says this, I myself will also bring you up again. It's God's promise to Jacob, Genesis 46, and again to Moses in Exodus 33. Now, what does this mean for us? Here's the bonus for us, guys. For us Gentiles, here's the bonus. These two promises that the Lord gave to these gentlemen back in Genesis thousands and thousands of years ago are now included for you and for me. I myself will go down with you. When the Lord is leading us in the path that he has us on, he will not fail us. He's not only prepared the way, he's gone in advance and prepared it, but he's also, again, walking with us, journeying with us as we go along what he's called us to do. That's every step of the way. I will also bring you up again. That's the Lord calling us home whenever our last Breath is taken or when he raptures us, which is imminent, by the way. Please be encouraged by that. The rapture is imminent. So do we fully understand these promises? Because, Christian, this is what you lean on. This is what you fall on in those times of storm, in those times when you don't understand what's going on. You confess and repent whatever the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. You are restored immediately with your Heavenly Father. And you trust Him. And you don't give up. Unbeliever, these promises are available for you today. All you got to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus. Yes, these patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses, and that includes those of us being grafted into the line of Abraham now, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been grafted into the promise of Abraham. Amen? That is huge. These guys all died before seeing God's promise of redemption to his people, and they believed that their eternal destination was secure. I'm going to put up, or actually, if the guys in the back and people in the back, if they can put up the Hebrews passage, I'm going to read a verse two in a chorus from a song by Rich Mullins. Sometimes by step. Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. He was a stranger in this land, and I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb can be so steep. I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. Oh, God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh, God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me, and I will follow you 
all of my days. Because of these biblical patriarchs, I've already said this once, I'm just going to say it again. Because of the biblical patriarchs and their obedience to God, in spite of their imperfections and sins, we as Gentiles have been now grafted into that line of Abraham and their spiritual lineage through Jesus, his death on the cross, his triumph over death, sin and Satan, and his imminent calling us home to be with him. All we got to do is receive that. So where are you at? You ever been surprised by a free gift? There's a couple times when I was in sales and I'm in line at Dunkin' Donuts or <laughs> McDonald's. And I go up to get my drink, my coffee, my meal, only to be told the person in front of you paid for you. There's no... No charge. And all of a sudden you're like, really? <laughs> wow, awesome. You want to do that for the person in back of you? Sometimes, yeah, sure. Sometimes, uh, next time. And then people, they post about it on social media. They even made a global wide hashtag about it pay it forward. People are ecstatic when this happens to them. And yeah, I get it. It is cool. Compare that to when people hear the gospel for the first time. A free gift of salvation. Free gift of forgiveness. Eternal life. All you have to do is admit that you're not a good person. And you are in need of a savior. And that's where the enemy likes to live, right there in that crisis of belief time. Doesn't want us to receive that gift of salvation. He doesn't even want us to hear it. And if we have to hear it, then he wants the person to curse God to their face and reject it. The gospel is offensive. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing or dying. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So as I close this out, it's the ABCs of salvation. You guys have seen this, I think, almost every time that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to share God's word here. It is this easy. Non-Christian unbeliever, not sure where you're at with Jesus, it is this easy. Admit you're a sinner, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, our Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. Just admit, acknowledge that you're a sinner. That's confessing and repenting of your sins. B, believe that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again from the dead, Romans 10, 9 and 10, which reads this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. You just got to keep doing the best that you can. Thank you. Absolutely not. That's the lie from the pit of hell that too many people buy into because they think that they can be their own God and get to God however they want to get to God. And that's not the case. God says there is only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. 
John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Don't believe the other lies, please. Don't. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be. For the heart one, for the, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That head-heart connection, you need both. And then lastly, C, call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll leave you with this. While these patriarchs, again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses... And now those of you who have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus and in him alone. Those guys all died and some of us might die before seeing the promised land here on earth. In fact, you know what? There is no promised land here on earth. Not until God comes down the second time at his second coming after the tribulation and sets up his kingdom here on earth. But they all died before seeing God's promise of redemption for his people. They believed their eternal destiny was secure because of their relationship with God. And their obedience was a natural overflow of their heart. God's grace was sufficient for them, and it's more than sufficient for you and for me. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, Immediately, you will be able to experience the unfathomable grace of God and then want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, come to save sinners. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you that you put into your love letter to us sinful wicked people that you chose to save, God, and use for your honor, for your glory, for your purposes, like the song we sang today, like Joseph even said to his brothers, what you and the enemy used for evil, God used for good. Because God is greater. God is greatest. And Lord, the bad news about us is very bad. And the badder the bad news, the gooder the good news that you came to save us while we were still sinners. Jesus, you died for us. We love you. We trust you. Humbly ask for your blessing in the rest of this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.